Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I am very pleased indeed to welcome Jody Adams Kirshner, who is the author of Broke, Hardship and Resilience in a City of Broken Promises from St. Martin's Press. Jody, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So before we dive in and talk about this book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and how you came to this particular project. Well, I am a lawyer and taught bankruptcy law at Cambridge University in England for a long time. And I was doing that when Detroit entered bankruptcy in 2013. And as somebody who was teaching and reading and writing about bankruptcy, I was certainly paying attention to that. It was really the biggest thing that had happened in municipal bankruptcy ever. The idea of using bankruptcy for a city as large as Detroit with problems as complicated as Detroit, this was really new. And so I was reading newspaper articles. There there were very dramatic headlines about rising municipal debt and Detroit is first and who will be next. And I was also paying attention to the more academic and policy conversation that was going on that was talking about bankruptcy really as a cure-all for the problems of distressed cities. And it, it struck me that nowhere in any of that conversation was anybody talking about how a city winds up in a distressed state and what bankruptcy means for the people that live in that kind of city. And as I began to spend more time in Detroit, it began to seem very urgent, really, to write a book about what is ultimately the human cost of municipal distress. So it's, 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 if, if I may say, and please don't take this the wrong way, it is not a book you would imagine having been written by a lawyer. Um, because it is, in fact, the story of the bankruptcy of Detroit and really an attempt to sort of, of understand the meaning of that. But you are telling it really through the experience of principally seven different people and what bankruptcy in Detroit has meant to them. So I wonder if you might just talk to us a little bit about methods first before we talk about this. Tell us a little bit about who are these people? How did you come to meet them? How did you get to know them? What kind of time did you spend with them? What was your, your process there? So I'm really glad to hear that because the idea was not to write a book that was in any way academic (laughs) and to write something that that really had as broad an audience as possible because I think think this is important for our country to be thinking about urban issues more. We've talked a lot about rural alienation since the 2016 election, and we, we really haven't talked so much about what the reality is in, in many of our cities. So I wanted to tell the story through people. I wanted this to be about people and what it means to be an American in the vast number of American cities that have problems that are perhaps not on the scale of Detroit's, but for which Detroit is emblematic of. And as I started going to Detroit, it was striking how Anybody that I talked to, I mean, so much of what was going on for people in Detroit was a housing story and their own problems with housing, unstable housing, so obviously reflected itself in the city's instability because property taxes are a large portion of the revenues that a city has. And so I started out looking for people 
who would let me follow them and talk to them on a frequent and regular basis for a period of years, beginning with the housing issue. I mean, most people are aware that cities like Detroit were ground zero for subprime lending. In 2005, um, about 70% of mortgages in Detroit were subprime. That's compared to a 24% nationwide average that year. Less well thought about, I think, is what happened to those houses and what it means for a city when vast swaths of it have houses that were owned in, lived in by families that suddenly are in limbo, what it means when many of those properties get bought by investors who don't live in a city and realize that they aren't going to be as profitable as they hoped, and the kind of devastation that that wreaks on neighborhoods and on communities that are really the fabric of a city. So it's, it's, and a lot of, a lot of the the people who we meet in this book are often sort of rooted deeply in the city. They care about the city, they care about their neighborhoods, and they are often trying to do the right thing, trying to maintain their home uh, and this this enormous sort of array of powers and institutions is getting in the way of them doing what they think is is the right thing. Is there is there maybe one uh, uh, example of this that you think is sort of most telling? One of these experiences to give folks a flavor of the way in which you sort of tell this financial story through the experience of people sort of on the ground dealing with the end result of of these these powers and processes. Yes. I mean, one of one of the themes that I wanted to try to bring out was the idea that a city can fix its problems on its own is unrealistic in our federal system where a city is subject to all sorts of state laws and regulations and all sorts of federal policies and laws that affect a city. And that expresses itself in the book in the real estate story, in education, in transportation, in training, I think one of the more obvious places is that car insurance in Detroit is so very expensive. I mean, it costs on average about $6,000 a year in Detroit, which is more than some housing. The, the national average cost is about $800. Detroit's political leadership knows that that is too expensive. It talks about it as a civil rights issue because of the difficulty of being able to drive to get to work. And yet, that's a matter of state law. Um, there's a, a You are time... legally required to own insurance in the state, correct? You are. Of course, a lot of people in Detroit are driving without it and can get in big trouble if they're found out, there was a moment in the book when Charles, who is one of the seven people, he's a, a lifelong Detroiter. His family made it to the middle class through the car industry. He has construction skills that he's having trouble finding out how to use in the current economy. There's a, a moment when he is driving with friends and the car behind them hits them as they're waiting at a railroad crossing. And Charles is waiting in the car and he's terrified because he knows 
that his car doesn't have car insurance. He's waiting to see the car behind him start calling the police because, of course, that's what somebody with car insurance would do. And then enough time passes that he realizes that neither of them have car insurance. And when that dawns on both cars, Charles and the other driver get out and they give each other a hug. And then they're both on their way. And Charles thinks that this is a great outcome, that how wonderful that two people without car insurance have hit each other. And what would have happened uh, had the other person had insurance and called the police as, as I imagine the law requires them to do, as it does in lots of places? Well, this is unfortunately a story that is borne out by another of the seven people in the book, and that's Miles, who is a friend of Charles and is dogged by by many problems, some of them the result of civil and criminal court processes that he just can't escape, even as he wants a new start. And he he is also trying to get to work and also grappling with the inability to afford car insurance. And he he is caught up in the judicial system largely because of being found out to not have proper car insurance. And that that gets him mired in all sorts of other other things. It's not good for him. But to drive without insurance, there are fines, there are fees. There are payment plans that are difficult for him to stay on. It's it's a really an inroads into the criminal justice system for a lot of people. Which and you know just sort of as a footnote, as you point out, Detroit is eighty percent African American somewhere in that neighborhood. Is that yes. still true? Yeah. Yes. So and and we know that these problems everywhere are exacerbated for Black Americans, um, but that and that they were also disproportionately hit. Uh, by the collapse in the mortgage market, right, by the the housing crisis. Uh, So you've got sort of this concentration of these effects happening happening in Detroit. But I mean, I think what becomes just this this constant almost Kafka-esque kind of frustration through, through Miles and others' experience in the book is these interactions with the criminal justice system that go above and beyond what normal Black Americans can expect to confront on a regular basis, in part because of the weirdness that is going on around homeownership and contracts and land contracts. I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about sort of what is the, the, the big level finance stuff? How does that affect these individuals? And, and, and how is it that someone comes to live in a house and not actually not know whether they have a legal right to be there or not? All very good questions, and I think are are best talked about in housing and also in education, which I want to be sure to get to. But um, you're alluding to land contracts and a house that you don't necessarily own. This is an instrument that has been in existence for a long, long time and was used often in minority communities going back to the days of redlining. It's a person effectively buys a house as if they're on a rent-to-own contract. They're paying money each month, but they don't own the house until they've made all of the payments. And if they miss a payment, then anything that they've paid already towards the house is lost. It's like rent-to-own furniture. It's sort of that model, only it's a house. Yes. And in the wake of the financial crisis... 
it's been more expensive to write mortgages on houses and not really worth doing it if a house isn't worth more than $50,000. There's also really been no active normal mortgage market in Detroit in the wake of the problems. There are 20% of the mortgages written there as similarly sized cities. There are so few sales and the neighborhoods are dangerous. So there's been very little ability to do an assessment and come up with the actual assessed value of a house. So people like Reggie, who is another one of the seven in the book, who want to become homeowners as he very much did. He had adopted some children from a relative and he just wanted to, those children to feel like they had a house to come home to every day. Many people who want home ownership, who wouldn't qualify for a mortgage, have turned to land contracts as a way to buy a house. Reggie was delighted to find a house from somebody who was willing to offer him a land contract. And he, he figured it was his path to home ownership, that it was something affordable that he could do, that he had construction skills and would be able to fix anything that was wrong with the house, that he had family available to help him. So he bought the house. He wasn't able to see it before the ownership, before he got the keys. He ultimately never got the ownership. When he opened the door the first time, ready to start work, I mean, he saw that there was absolutely nothing there. There was no pipes, no sinks, no toilets, no, no walls. And he put all of his savings into making it livable for his family. And it was. They loved the house. He's a, a big cook. He would bake lasagnas in the oven. He would host extended families on the lawn. What he couldn't fix was that he discovered that the whole foundation of the house was cracked which meant that the house was actually practically worthless. When it rained, walls would have condensation develop on them. But he still loved the house, and he had paid all of it off. He made his last payment, and when he went to call the woman he'd been dealing with, she absolutely disappeared. She said she would transfer the house into his name, and then he could never find her again. And he he lost the house. And that, I mean, there's there's in some ways absolutely nothing unusual about that story in Detroit, right? I mean, it's 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 a lot of, of some of what you described is is you know sort of uh, people coming from outside. Maybe it's worth talking about Robin for a little bit, right? Come in as speculators, buy up houses. I mean, dirt cheap for you know sort of of low thousands, right? A thousand dollar, two thousand, three thousand dollars can sometimes buy you a house. You turn around, write a land contract, rent it out. Uh, that can be an okay source of income, and you don't necessarily care whether you retain possession of that house down the long road. So you've got people like um, Reggie, right, who are are interested in building a home and building up communities, right? And this is one of the problems that Detroit has is 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 abandoned areas, right? But when people move in and start turning them into neighborhoods, right? These these buyers from outside often don't care about any of that. So talk a little bit about sort of of Robin or other outside forces that are coming in and exacerbating these problems for the residents of Detroit. Well, and and Robin is important in all of this. Before I get to him, let me let me keep going with Reggie because of course. he loses the house. He offers he offers the 
company at that point he doesn't realize that it's a company but it's a national company that has has bought the house he offers that company $7000 which is about as much as the company has paid for his house and Reggie knows that it's not worth that much he knows that the foundation is cracked he knows that the roof leaks and that those are the roof is a major repair and really the foundation isn't repairable but the company won't accept that and he ends up taking his family somewhere else and it seems like everything has stabilized for them and then i went i went to see reggie again expecting that things would be kind of settling out and okay and instead found the whole family just in complete trauma and what had happened came out slowly but it seems that a neighbor at the old house knowing that he was going to be living by a vacant lot where Reggie's family used to be had bought a Doberman Pinscher dog that wasn't trained and he'd gone and walked it during the night and seen that Reggie's house was on fire called the fire department and the circumstances were were very suspicious i mean somebody had unlocked the front door with a key and locked it again and set a fire in the back of the house, which isn't typical behavior of, of random arson. So it seems like the company that bought the house hadn't really been able to see all of the damage until they were able to really take ownership after Reggie and his family had left and had realized that it wasn't going to be profitable. And and they were in it, understandably, for, for profit. They were in a family that was going to live there. And I, I went back to see the old house and I, I was taking an Uber for various reasons. And I was trying to explain to the driver what we were doing, that I just wanted to drive by that address and not get out. And there was this burnt shell of a house. And I was just so upset and telling him that a family that I knew well used to live there. And it was so sad. And instead of having the reaction that I was having, this Uber driver who was a Detroiter just sort of said, you know, what's new, lady? What do you expect? This happens all the time. So tell us about Robin. So Robin is um, is really not that kind of investor. He is right. a, a well-intentioned person. He had been a filmmaker in Los Angeles and just began thinking about wealth in America and deciding that really so much of wealth is made or held in real estate. And since his films were trying to have people see the world in a different way, maybe he could see wealth in a different way and learn about it. So he got into real estate investing and was looking at a model that would take place in a city that would involve buying homes, pulling money out of them to buy more homes. He bought his first home in Detroit right before the financial crisis started, right before the bottom dropped out of the residential lending market. And he has stayed in Detroit since then. And I think what's what's compelling about Robin is that he is a person who is trying to do good. He appreciates the beauty in Detroit real estate and that really that kind of investment in aesthetics in the past is the best hope of the future for the city. But he's also answerable to investors and needs to be making a profit. And what 
what might seem easy in a city with, you know, a third of the city is abandoned. Real estate is extremely inexpensive. It is very, very difficult to make a profit that way. At one point, he has a dream that he can go into a house and come out a week later, and it's just been magically restored because the reality is that that any property will just take an unlimited amount of money to to get back into the marketplace. Because many of them look like the house that you described, right? The place is so poor and there's so little by way of resources and unemployment, right, is so high and jobs are so scarce that an abandoned house means that people are going to go in and they're going to take anything that they might be able to sell for scrap. So often you've got, right, sort of, of miles and miles of, of empty shells, which uh, you can imagine complicate the 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 flipping the house model. Yes, I mean one of one of the other seven that we haven't talked about is Cindy, who is white and a lifelong Detroiter, and she is in a neighborhood where you know there's maybe four of eighteen houses on the block that are occupied, and she's just guarding her safety the best that she can. She's She's putting family members into the house next door so that it remains a viable house. She's watching scrappers take all the copper wiring out of the house across the street and waving to her as she watches him because it's so brazen. So it's, it's I mean, we've sort of heard at length about, about the struggles that so many folks are going through. And it, I mean, it really is just, it's, it's even if you've read sort of, of newspaper stories about what's going on in Detroit, I think one of the things that's special about the book is that it, that it takes that sort of that deep knowledge and analysis of, of the economy of the markets of, of sort of all of those larger macro forces, but really homes in on, on, on that individual experience and just the ways in which so many people have no margin for error in Detroit and they are doing their very best and still failing in part because they're up against systems that they didn't stand a chance against. And yet you say toward the end of the book that this is not a story of failure um, necessarily. Right. So talk to us a little bit about, about uh, is, what, what are the lessons that we should learn from Detroit? And then what do you see from your perspective as what can be done to make the experience of those folks and the lives of those folks better. Yeah, I, you know, I think this is a story of, of what bankruptcy cannot do. And it's a cautionary tale to not think that we can all wash our hands of problems in American cities and think that bankruptcy will, will solve it all and no further effort is needed that if we care about the idea that it matters where in America you live, that where you live in America right now determines the the horizons of your life and the level of opportunities that you have, then what we really need is the opposite of bankruptcy. It means you know, doing the hard work of improving the situation of individuals because a city is the people that who live in it. And, and the future of the people who live in a city is really a city's future. And the kind of policies that deny resources in areas of need only serve to heighten that kind of geographic divide. But I mean, a lot of those resources are going to have to be federal and state rather than local, right? Some of this is surely beyond Detroit's control, yes? 
think so. I mean, the the final person in the book of the seven that we haven't talked about is Lola. She has a a college degree from a four-year college. She graduated from um, one of the city's best high schools where she learned to speak Mandarin. But she is commuting 80 miles each way to a low-income job at a call center. She is trying desperately to keep hold of a house that she doesn't really feel very safe living in. And she's worried about the future of her daughter, who is in the first grade in a school system where students receive half the funding of students in cities like New York and Boston. And if we start to peel peel the onion on that, I mean, so that's that's jobs, that's transportation to jobs, that's policing and safety, and that's public education. I mean, so many of those are not ultimately Detroit issues. They are national and state issues. Yes. We have been speaking today with Jody Adams Kirshner, who has been talking about her extraordinary new book called Broke, Hardship and Resilience in a City of Broken Promises. Jody, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.